Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, glowworms, and welcome to yet another episode of The Vanity Project with me, Vanity Von Glow. When I was growing up, I flirted for a long time with the idea of becoming an actor. The idea of escaping into a role and examining the particularities of the human experience in played-out scenes, improvised or scripted with other people, was exciting to me. But sadly, it was not to be. I ended up becoming a performance artist by accident, or what I mean is by non-purposeful design. After my Halloween costume in a nightclub in Scotland raised a few eyebrows, drag always does, the manager of Delmonica's in Glasgow's Merchant City asked me if I'd stand in last minute as part of their five-man Girls Allowed tribute act in early November, I think in 2008. I said yes, and before I knew it, I was back again the following week singing the songs of Pink when the official Pink impersonator's train was cancelled and they needed something, anything, passable as a replacement. I didn't know any of the lyrics. Um, I had literally just spray-painted my natural hair bright pink, and uh, in fact, the more I cast my memory back, the keener I am to move on from the whole sorry affair. A disappointing performance that was, let me tell you. But nonetheless... I enjoyed being on stage and things snowballed for me because in time, and listeners in Glasgow might remember this, I kicked off a weekly Tuesday comedy and game show night called Dole or No Dole in a bar called Scene, which for some reason was a hit, drawing great numbers and establishing me as something on the scene there. It's been 12 or maybe even 13 years since those days. And what I've found over the years is that I enjoy performing best in the moments where there is no script. A performance artist working in drag is intertwined with the audience. The audience become part of the show, but not just during the official performance. Even walking down the street, will passers-by play along with the persona, or will they become uncomfortable? Maybe they'll become hostile, maybe they'll be transfixed. The actress Miriam Margulies, who one day we hope to have here on The Vanity Project, said that she enjoys being outrageous, because in the split second after saying something off-colour or risque, before people have a moment to compose themselves, you see in their natural response who they truly are. So are they blithe and nonplussed? Are they canny and game? Are they anxious or permission-seeking? Despite all of this, I still have in the back of my mind a notion to at least one time take on a dramatic acting role for some project or another. Maybe they'll let me play Eva Peron in Evita. 
Today's guest is an actor famous in homes around the UK for his long-term role as a principal cast member on one of the most successful shows in UK television history. Playing the part of Daniel, the son of the iconic Ken Barlow on Coronation Street, it is none other than the delightful Rob Mallard. Rob happens to be a gay man, and we have an interesting conversation, so put the kettle on and relax as we shoot the breeze in today's chat. Well, I am thrilled with today's guest, who is a star of the screen. Um, those of you that are avid fans of British soaps, and I know that this soap in particular has a big audience with the gays, uh, will know him for playing Daniel Osborne on Coronation Street. It's the wonderful Rob Mallard, who is coming to us today, I believe, of course, from Manchester. Rob, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm excited to have a conversation about the work that you do in soaps and the entertainment uh, industry. All of our guests so far have been quite serious people. Um, and not to say that you're not a serious person, but it's great to be talking to a fellow performer today. Oh, great. So this is the, uh, this is the palate cleanser podcast episode, is it, in between all of the, uh, the more serious things? Yeah. Yeah, think of it as an amuse-bouche between, between uh, other meals. Um, so you've been on Coronation Street now for about four or five years, is that right? Yeah, six, just, I just entered my sixth year, yeah. So you're very much ensconced in the production and you'll, you know, your whole life will be built around the schedule for the show. You film quite a lot in soaps, I'm aware. Um, how is it now going from being, uh, you know, at, I, I assume at drama school, to now being on a big production where you're, you're working a lot. I mean, that's the dream for an actor. Oh yeah, absolutely it is. And um, I don't have a uh, rep anymore, um, but the soap world, I would say, is the closest thing in existence to that because after you finish your training, you only have three years of training. Um, what used to happen would be actors would leave and go into rep theater and they would build their experience. And it was kind of a continuation of that training, but real world. And it also meant that if you were doing rep in some, a regional theatre somewhere, if you made a mistake or if you, you know, tried something and it didn't work, then it was forgotten about because it was only in this one regional theatre. Whereas this version of the rep, because it's filmed, um, if you make a mistake, it's going to be there forever. So it's 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 more, more intense, but the, the experience that you get, all the different changes of situation that your character will go through, um, it's a brilliant training ground. And is it quite, um, I suppose if you were in uh, in a local or a regional rep theatre, you'd probably be doing the same play every night for weeks on end. Whereas for you, you actually have to re, you're doing new lines all the time. Is that, uh, is that frustrating? Cause you're just, you, every day there's something new to learn. Uh, no, I like it. Um, I think it keeps your mind sharp. So Bill Roach, uh, who plays Ken, who's been in it since the very beginning. Since the um, 1800s. Since the early 1800s, yeah. Um, he is, is one of, still very incredibly sharp. He's 89. Um, and I've asked him about this, and he seems to think the same thing. He thinks that having to learn lines for the last 60 years constantly is uh, one of the best ways of keeping your brain sharp and able to pick up new information. Of course, the flip side to that, though, is because of the volume that we get, 
once you've filmed it, you forget it. Um, so you have very good short-term retention, but then nothing really goes into the long-term bank. <laughs> yeah, I, I find something similar with the performances that I do. If I'm doing some new songs for a, for a one-off show, maybe I'll do some Stephen Sondheim or something where it's very wordy. You've really got to get that in your head. And then one month later, I look at my piano player and I say, let's do that Sondheim one again and discover that I have completely erased the lyrics from my mind. You know, it's it's strange. It's like a different type of, of remembering. It's like when people used to cram for exams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just you hold on to it. You can regurgitate it back up for a specific moment. But uh, yeah, it's I've, I've had that. I've seen bits that have gone out on TV or I've had people say things to me about certain storylines and I'm going, what? Yeah. Oh, did we film that? Oh, right. Because <laughs> there's just so much of it. And do you watch do you watch the show back or for you you've recorded and then watch something you were you've already done? Um I don't watch the show when I'm filming the show because that's too much because you you'd be in from say 7:30 till 7 at night and then you'll be learning lines that evening as well. So sit and watch Coronation Street whilst being that immersed in it is a bit too much. I tend to watch it more when I'm having a quiet period, that's when I'll dip back in. Um, yeah. And if there are certain bits of storyline that um, you're interested to see how that turned out, like there was the cancer storyline with Sinead that we, we played about two, two and a half years ago. Um, well, we didn't really have a choice for that one because there was a press screening where we, we sat down and, and watched all of the episodes. But as a general rule of thumb, uh, if, I'm, if I'm filming a lot, then I don't, I don't tend to watch. I'll dip back in when I'm quieter. Yeah. I think people sometimes don't realize, I mean, I can only imagine I, I've not, I'm, I'm not in any uh, big TV shows, but anytime that I am on a set for anything, be it filming a music video for someone or stuff like that, it's actually, it is long days. Um, the time it takes for, for the crew to reset and to, to move things around and to get the lighting just right, or to, to pick up the audio in all the right way. There's so many little things that actually can go wrong that it means that you've got a, a, a huge amount of time of, I suppose, sitting, waiting for everything to go again. So yeah, it's quite, it's quite, quite hard work. Yeah. There's an expression, uh, hurry up, and, uh, hurry up and wait, um, which we, <laughs> we tend to live by. So, I mean, and just a general rule for performers, isn't it? Um, but I think it's, I mean, this is the, the, the performative side of, of what we do. That's the finished product. But then I suppose the, the skill and the craft that goes into it is um, it's a mental discipline. So you've got to be able to keep, hold on to your energy levels, hold on to the performance, hold on to what you need to do that day and let yeah. it out just the right times because like you said yeah. you can be waiting for quite a while for cameras to be rigged and lights to be rigged and you might need to go again for whatever reason so having the discipline to be able to control what you do and not um sort of waste it all in the first half of the day and then by the time you get to the afternoon you've got nothing left you, just, you can't focus you're tired yeah. you just want to leave so there, there is a mental, the mental discipline aspect of it is a quick challenge, I think. I feel the same way with the shows that I do. And um, I've realized this a lot more coming out of the pandemic. So um, 
you know, during that long period where I wasn't doing shows, I was reflecting on what what do I get from them and what am I giving in them? And one thing I've learned in, in the time that we've come back is that the shows take a kind of emotional toll because they're, you know, I'm singing a lot and I've got to be funny. So I've got to be on. And the best humor is the reactive, spontaneous humor of the moment. So you have to keep your mind agile. But I feel like I only have so many chips that I can spend in terms of energy to be funny and to be to be amusing or to be fabulous so if i've had a fun afternoon with my friends i've kind of drained myself of that energy for the evening show so i have to budget my it's almost like my my desire to be sociable i have to budget that in order to uh, use it wisely when when it counts which for me is when i when i have an audience and that kind of results in feeling sometimes like I belong to my own show, not to myself, which can be quite draining because I, you know, I don't always want to be, Aaron, it's a hard life being so fabulous, Rob, but I don't always want to have to be on. Someone's got to you know? do it. Someone's got to do it. Somebody has to keep the sequin manufacturers in business. Exactly. So, yeah, I think what you were talking about there is um, the difference. I always find this interesting, the difference between introverts and uh, extroverts. So I'm an introvert and I'm imagining that you are too based on what you've just uh, explained there. So an introvert regains their energy by spending time by themselves and yeah. an extrovert gets their energy levels back by being around other people. Yeah. So as a performer, if you're an introvert, like you were saying, you have to be careful not to over-socialize yourself and you won't have the yeah. energy for it later on. Yeah. Well, I definitely thought before, like I say, before the pandemic, I would have described myself as being extroverted. And I look back now and I think that really I was just drunk. <laughs> like, I, you know, I've honestly, I've reappraised my relationships in the past six months. And it's part of the reason for doing the podcast is feeling like I want to have conversations with a more diverse spread of people than I do working in bars. And um, now I have started to notice I don't have this natural desire to to be to be the life and soul of the party as much as I thought and I definitely do recharge when I'm by myself so I guess a great performance or a great performer has to know themselves in order to give the best of themselves in in the time where they're working oh yeah absolutely I mean you I mean not to go too far back into the ritual basis of the drama but um like the the pro performing uh, depending on what kind of performing you do it um is about it's not about putting, I was just about to say, it's not about putting things on, but we've already established the sequence. The sequence are important. So one step performing, you're putting things off, but like with, with actors, it's about taking, uh, this sounds really wank, taking layers off. Instead of going, if you have a character or a situation and going, um, I don't know, I would never do that. You go, but what is it about you would stop you from behaving like that and then remove those aspects from your personality? And that's how yeah. you, you can understand that you've got um, the, the sort of the germ of every other person inside you, basically. Like you, you could yeah. have been like this if, if, if events had unfolded differently. And once you, once you think about things like that, it's not difficult to, I don't think then, difficult to put yourself in any situation the, the playwright or the screenwriter is asking. There's. Um... There are obviously actors who, I mean, over the course of a career, 
you can play so many different parts and people have to find empathy for characters who've done terrible things, you know, serial killers or, you know, people who've abandoned their kids or any, anything like that. And in order to play a part with the humanity of it, I, I can understand why you need to appreciate that, you know, we all have the potential to end up in, in some, some really awful situations and to behave terribly. So I suppose you have to abstain from judgment over the character. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And that's, you know, especially on a, on a show, especially on, on Corrie, which is um, historically it's quite a moral, moral show. So the, the villains usually get their comeuppance. may take right. a while and a couple of storylines later, but someone who's committed certain crimes or whatever, they, they don't last as long in the show because then well, the show can't tacitly approve of these behaviours by saying, yeah, this is a likeable, well character we're going to keep around, but they're also going around stabbing people or whatever it is, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, a show like this then, Tends to the morality, morality bit tends to catch up with people, but um, and then some some crimes are worse than others. So you can say murder, for example. Um, not that everyone has had murderous thoughts or feelings, but the the seeds of it, I think most people have felt they've been they've been that angry that the short the, the short switch has gone in their head and they've thought a dark thought, and it's that leap there where you go. That's how that's how you can make that leap into understanding that character's patient. But then I think other things, difficult for even for the actors to get their head around. So you might be child abuse, for example, or something perverted, for example. A lot of people want to stay away from it. Every, every actor wants to give you his Hitler, but it's an award bait. <laughs> but yeah. uh, not a lot of actors want to go near darker things. And you've won some awards in the period of your career. Um, you won, what was it, the British Soap Award? Um, yeah, the uh, British oh, Soap Award. Yeah, so that's great recognition. Um, fancy awards ceremony, I'd imagine. Do oh, you yeah, like well, that part of being a t an actor on TV that you get to go and sort of you know, the glitz and the glamour? No, I have such imposter syndrome. Ah. Uh, really bad i always think i mean i was at a charity event a few weeks back um and i'm looking around and i can see all these faces that you'd instantly recognize and i'm thinking i am i understand why i'm here don't out why but you know well this this charity do was uh hosted by uh, denise welch so it was christmas <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i love denise welch you know that when i was um Years ago, I was working on the set of Loose Women, um, not in my capacity as a performer, and I stole her mug from the set. And like it, it was, I think it was a old one because it was very faded. So it had obviously been through the washing machine several times. And I thought, oh, Denise Belcher's mug, I'll have that. And then in my house, I used to live with Baga Chips, who's a, a drag queen who you may know. Um, and Baga stole the mug from me. So wow. the mug has has been on a like a little theft journey of yes. London, and like I guess she has it in her house now. I don't know. You got a wash bagger. Yeah, you, well, you, you know what drag queens steal. It's part part of what we do. Um, so um, as an actor, I suppose you're like the rest of us. There's movies and films and and other artists and 
in your style of, in performance who you love but what actors have inspired you over your career do you have favorites yeah i mean so it's i was thinking about this it, it usually tends to be women um because i think that women are naturally better actors than men um, uh no this is this is this is exactly what i'd expect a gay man to say um <laughs> But I agree with you. I am so I find women on screen more compelling. I th I feel like that's a minority opinion actually. But I just well, I, I, I I watched because um, one of the I used to be very very obsessed with Meryl Streep. Um, yeah, I must have seen all of her films countless times. Um, Meryl, possibly a few of them, and uh, I just think that she was she's just incredible the way that what she does. Is, is, is absolutely brilliant. And I watched an interview with her once where for a speech that she was giving, I think a, a women's conference years ago, and she explained this and I, it's always stuck with me. She said that um, since women are better at acting than men because evolutionary, evolutionarily, they have to be. Because if, if convincing someone who is much larger and physically stronger than you of something they don't want to hear, that is a survival skill. And that's built into women. Mm. I think that that gives them a natural edge and they've got more of an inclination for uh, empathy and compassion. So I tend to have tended to look up to the, the women more than the men. Yeah, I think I think um, I've not heard Meryl say that, but I can definitely get on board with that to to a significant extent. It's the it's the same thing for which sort of brutish men in history have considered women to be temptresses and tricksters, you know? There's a kind of misogynistic view that men have of women, um, in part because they can't understand a woman's emotional story um, and feel deceived if a woman has had to convince them uh, if I, you know, because if you're, yeah, it's that thing, if you're stronger, if you're, if you're a man that gets his way all the time back in you know, hundreds of years ago, or even more recently, um, you might not appreciate like the value of um, uh, of the subtleties of mm. an emotional performance. And I think that women have uh, an easier time accessing that, and then gays as well by by extension, because they they tend to spend most of their formative years around uh, girls that are turning into women. So yeah, they're closer closer to it, and I think that that gives us way in i mean do you think there might be something of that um i i think um graham norton said once that he found it harder growing up protestant in catholic ireland than he did being gay there and when he said that i thought it's funny that the thing people think would have been an issue for you isn't actually always the biggest issue so i found it more challenging being a non-masculine boy than I did finding that I was gay. So when I was a little boy, I was very effeminate, and I suppose I'm a, I'm a drag queen. So now it all makes some sense. Um, I suppose oh, I've deployed, you know, I've deployed my feminine uh, or effeminate energies into uh, performance where it's celebrated um, and where it adds something. But also that means that for people like me, I had to grow up observing that identity can be a bit of a performance and that people are um, performing uh, as themselves. So then you think about how do I become myself? How do I 
uh, how do I play in a group in a way that I'll be liked or received well? So you start to become a little actor. Oh yeah, and um, and if, say like with with little little gays and little lesbians, um, when the earlier you cotton on to that, um, the longer your sort of character profile as you well you hide first, don't you? I don't know. I did, and think people did when I was growing up. And you sort of observe the boys and how the boys behave, and observe the girls and how they behave, and how you're supposed to behave to, to pass or to go unseen, as it were, before you um, before you. Wow, that is all character. That's all. That's all acting. And is that what you were saying? Sorry, I think I've gone off. Yeah, I think so. I think you know. There's a. I I I think that's part of it. That when we're when we're young, and you know everything that humans do, I think is an, is an attempt to give or receive love deep down. It's we all want connection. We're so it's social animals. I mean, that's the clearest thing that I've learned from the pandemic as well is my awareness of my need for other people, and that the work I do isn't invaluable necessarily innately of itself all the time. Like I want to show people my work. I want people to listen to the music. I want them to enjoy. I want to touch them. I want them to be moved to make me, you know, we're all interconnected. So when you're young and you're, you're trying to find out where you fit and where you belong, you try on different hats. Some people become a class clown. Some people become X, Y, Z. I think, um, I think sometimes it's a blessing for, um, for the gay kids who couldn't pass as straight because they haven't, performed as other than they are you know you just have to kind of work you you work out over time which who you are and and how to be yourself and you don't you don't have this like um softened or blurred out version of yourself that you put on for other people yeah yeah and i think it's so, a lot now. so obviously i mean as an i mean i I, I believe that actors' jobs are to play the part on the page and to bring it to life. Um, I feel like 20 years ago, it would have been quite a big deal uh, that there would be a gay actor playing a straight part in one of the big soaps because gay actors were never out, you know? Whereas that's not so much the case now. You don't seem to be inhibited by your sexuality in the part that you're playing at this time. And I presume that would be the case going forward. You're just going to play the parts that are right for you. Yeah. And I know, yeah, you can, you could also say that as, as it, this is a concept that it exists, the, the concept of the gay actor does exist. Um, and 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 as the, as that gay actor, you only ever then play gay roles. Um, mm. And I don't know whether I don't think that's a conscious decision on the actor's part. I think that are that's we talking about porn? <laughs> <laughs> Not just yet. That is the highest form of acting. <laughs> it's the highest form of acting. Um, no, I mean like I forgot what we're saying now. <laughs> I know I threw I threw the the yeah the porn's throwing you off. You're not planning on moving in that direction with your career, Rob, are you? <laughs> no, well, I mean, I don't know. I keep seeing how much money Perry Cotone is making and thinking, maybe it's not that bad. No, joking. <laughs> um, I was saying about the concept of the gay actor, that um, in the past, the industry, if you came out, the industry would then put you in a box and say, okay, you're, you're a gay actor, therefore you're going to play yeah. these roles. Um, obviously, it's less like that now. Um, but I think that 
that line is definitely blurred. And I mean, in the show, there's I play a straight character, but the, my roommate on the show, he is a straight actor playing a gay character. So those lines are are being blurred. But I mean, it's, it's acting, isn't it? It's like you get into this thing about only certain people can play certain parts based on yeah, uh, based on things about their identity. I mean, the point of acting is that you are being something else. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, it's like more of a documentary than than a performance. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I know that I just watched the movie last Christmas, which um, Emma Thompson wrote and stars in with Emilia Clark. And Emma Thompson plays some like Yugoslavian, uh, you know, woman in her fifties with 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 adult kids and stuff and is hamming this performance up. I mean, it's it's a comedy, so she's allowed to, and it's Emma Thompson, so she can do whatever she wants. I, I remember watching it and thinking, you know, there is sometimes bubbling under, especially if you go into the wrong corner of Twitter, there's always like this tension that people have around people playing characters from other backgrounds, from, you know, from other nationalities, from uh, stuff like that. But actually, that is the work of acting, you know, acting is, there's a, actually, it's about that connection to the common humanity, which you were saying earlier. Um, it's, 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 it's literally the actor's work to do that. Um, they find they find and that's so much more interesting as well like um so watching somebody like stanley tucci play gay roles is just mm. fantastic absolutely fantastic because did you see his new film supernova no no i haven't to my yeah. shame it was a film that I, I kept meaning to watch and i never got around to it um but he, you know he's like when in devil west prada for example um it was such a, it wasn't a caricature of a gay man. It was very, very subtle. And yeah. to me, having, you know, watched the other things that Sammy Tucci would do, that's a nice stepping outside of his, his box, do stuff like that. And that's always much more interesting than going, oh, I know what I'm going to get. Yeah. I know what they do. And their brand is, you know, hard man. What they're going to do all the time is i think it's really interesting to watch an actor do some play a part that you would never normally cast them one of the joys brilliant things about being at drama school was that i mean it was ridiculous a cast of men and you know the women had get cast as year old women and in, and you would never actually get cast in those things in the real world yeah. until you are closer to them but you were able to play those parts because people on the year and there wasn't any 60 year old men so someone needed to do it but um otherwise in in casting terms you 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 tend to get as possible especially on uh, soaps i imagine um you don't have time to basically be a completely different person all the time yeah you have to allow what you have naturally to fill out uh, the character yeah. and the situations yeah. because you, you are you are you are your best resource. Um, and instead of thinking about how to make it something completely different, you you can rely on what you have and how you've been cast to, to fill out that role. And uh, and and yeah. on a show like Coronation Street, the writers do take hints from what they see you do on screen. So you'll get a scene, and it might 
seem like it's you should play it one way, but then you do something different with it, and then that writer sees that episode of their that they wrote and sees that you've played it a way that they'd never anticipated, and then give them an idea and go, oh, well then because of that, what about if we do X, Y, and Z, and that keeps things fresh rather than just doing the same thing. So it's quite elastic then that the part as written over time will start to take on sort of like the character is quite sponge like it'll take on some of the uh, some of the inflections that you're bringing and then the writers respond to that. It's an interesting idea, especially because you'll be I mean, six years already is quite a long time to be with one character. I think about the cast of Friends who, you know, that was eight years or nine years and and then indeed even people on coronation street as you say have been playing a part for 20 30 40 years is that something that i mean obviously a character in a soap can be killed off or they might you know move off to durham or something like that but would you be happy being in the same role for the next 20 years because it must limit your ability to go and do say some theater somewhere because you've got to be around for this character for a lot of the time yeah um no i i i have interests that lie outside as well but i mean i did um before all this pandemic stuff started uh i went there was no more than two years without going on to back onto the stage um, yeah because i didn't want to get it when you when you on a tv studio if you make a mistake you can just say oh can we go again please or someone will just yeah. say there's a booming shot, you can't use that anyway. So it's kind of a dead medium. There's, there's no there's no audience there. It's just you just you might as well just be rehearsing. But yeah, uh, the stakes on, aren't as high. No, they're not, exactly. Um, whereas being on stage, you get an instant high off off the crowd or an instant low. Something and um yeah, I'm in six years now. Two years ago, I think, two and a half years ago, I did a play. Um, well, like a farce, really, um, written by one of the Quarry storyliners. So it was a, yeah. a, a venue up in Manchester. Um, they have a night called uh, JB Shots, which is you know, writers put together 15 minute pieces. Um, and then they all get sandwiched into one evening. And ours was War, in peace in fi- war and Peace in 15 minutes. And we were right. Wow. We we were using broomsticks as, as uh, horses and, you know, just really silly. Like acorn antiques on speed. Um, yeah. And naff Russian accents, naff French accents. And and it was so much fun. And it was so different to what you do on Corrie. Because on Corrie, it's um, all heightened situations. You have to deliver them naturalistically. Whereas this yeah. was, mm-hmm. it was outrageous. Like trying to encapsulate entire of this book in three lines in two characters and you have to go through all those emotions and that was a lot of fun but it's a different kind of different kind of challenge we were meant to be doing it again but then uh someone coughed in China and suddenly we're all yeah well I mean I'm sure I'm sure that in 2025 when we're all free to live our lives again um (laughs) we might be able to come and see you in in one of these one of these farcical uh, productions um, for anyone that that hasn't um, that doesn't watch the show they might have seen you on this morning and um, uh, and sort of 
on the promo circuit for Coronation Street. I know that you were discussing with um, with Phil and Holly that you um, have an essential tremor, so a medical condition where uh, a sort of, uh, how would you describe it? A neural? Um, well, yeah, it's essential tremor means, basically means they don't know where exactly it's caused in the brain. There's something in the brain that's uh, sending signals that are not being uh, received properly. So yeah, it's, um, it causes, I get it in my hands and in my arms. Uh, sometimes I get it in the back of my neck as well. Catherine Hepburn had, had it. Her head used to I, well, you know, so Catherine Hepburn is, well, she's in my top five favourite actors. I, I mean, I literally love her. I, I think she's just a force of nature. Um, and yeah, as she got older, um, people would, you know, if you were doing Catherine Hepburn impression, you would incorporate that because she did. She had a she had a slight, yeah, a slight tremor when she would uh, in her neck and in her hands. Um, and uh, she was I mean, it didn't really impact on her ability to communicate in a role. She did some of her best work in The Lion in Winter and on Golden Pond right into her 80s. Yeah. Yeah. But and and yeah, because it's not a, it's not mentally debilitating but it's just it's just a physical yeah. thing and it does get worse as you get older um just in the space of my childhood. everything gets worse as you get older rob everything. we just have to <laughs> accept right. that my hangovers that's right wine's got adult vitamins in it that's why we have it yes uh, yeah it didn't it didn't stop didn't stop her and the only thing i think it would hold me back because i it, i try and um take it head on when it when I'm on set. So because handling props, it becomes more of hands are shaking. Mm. So I see it mm. as a challenge when I'm at work to handle as many props as I can and and nail it. Um, and so often sometimes the hardest thing in a scene won't be anything to do with the scene. It'll be those plates down on that table out it looking like two soups, <laughs> basically. Yeah, um, of course. Or, or like they'll give you a phone with a lot of lot of close-ups on phones because we've not we don't do that Hollyoaks thing showing the, the text on screen. We, no, uh, we're, yeah, we're the little school. bubbles. We're still old school, and we get a shot of the of the actual phone itself. But honestly, they yeah. tend to be the hardest shots because I'm just I have to use both hands. I'm like I say to them, you'll only get like five good seconds out of me here, and then it will start to to tremor. Yeah. Um, but you just got to work around it. Um, and then as I get older, because a lot of, of theatre stuff um, is in a time when people would drink bottles and eat very delicately. And you might have a bit of problem with that type of stuff. Because it's the adrenaline system as well. And if, if a burst of adrenaline goes into it, um, it, it can set it off. So if it I was on stage, it, yeah. if I was on stage and I got a burst of adrenaline like that, something very delicate very difficult i mean i want i have i have a, I have a no, go on sorry <laughs> I, I once uh, i once was trying so desperately i was play, uh, doing a play at drama school um cloud nine by carol churchill and very gender bendy and all over the place and in the first half i was playing this woman um uh, in colonial africa and i had a sewing thing that i was using on stage uh, and my hands started shaking, and they were shaking that bad. I was pressing the thing down into my leg, and I actually sewed what I was stitching onto my costume uh, on stage. Didn't realise I'd done it, 
stand up and be very indignant right across the stage. And of course, the whole sewing thing came with me. So uh, occupation hazards, I suppose. Yeah. I always think, I have a theory that um, Jane Fonda struggles to walk now. Now, I I think this because, I mean, to be fair, she's she's getting right on in, in years. She must be about 80. But in that recent series of Grace and Frankie, she's never not supported by something. So she's always holding on to the edge of the couch. You know, like actually an 80-year-old woman very much might well be. Um, and it, But then, you know, it's still Jane Fonda giving a brilliant comic performance. And, you know, with all that, because so much of acting is also about charisma. I know there's the technical aspects, but... Um, especially with certain types of star performances, it's really about like magnetism and, and charm. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and like I'd say Brando in in yeah, space. I believe that that was how he got cast in the streetcar. He um, he didn't even really do an audition. He just walked into the room and I gave them a look, and they were like, "Yeah, that's him." Wow. The there are some people aren't there i think you see it in film particularly this i mean obviously film adds this like adds this glimmer to people i think like um oh who's a good example i mean people like sharon stone just kind of smolder they've i mean actually first in some cases it's beauty more than anything else you know um a sort of just where the screen grips onto them i there's a director I'm trying to think who it was that directed the Terence Vatigan play as the movie, The Deep Blue Sea, about seven years ago. And it's Tom Hiddleston and Rachel Weisz. And he says that, oh no, he doesn't say it about Rachel Weisz. It's uh, Tom Ford about Julianne Moore. Tom Ford said when Julianne Moore did a single man that they're friends and he'll look at her, he'll have the sort of the monitor there. He'll look at her with his own eyes and think there's Julianne. And then as soon as he looks in the monitor, to see how she's looking on screen, it, he, she starts to glow, she becomes luminous. And even though, I mean, she's a very beautiful woman, but she has this kind of accessible ordinariness too. But then just when you glamour up right and put the camera there and the lighting there, she really just starts to um, to yeah. give off this, this magnetism. Yeah, some people, I mean, that's without a doubt, some people, are, they've got a face that's designed to be captured on, on camera, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, so someone else that had that was, I mean, everyone looks better in black and white. Everybody looks yeah. better in black and white. But Betty yeah. Davis, Betty Davis um, the way that she would learn how to catch the lens. Like you can learn a lot about yeah. screen acting by watching the guys going up. Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, it's all seen as quite hammy now. Um, yeah. And right, rightly so, because, it, you know, it, it is. But there's something, there's still something about a look or the way that she would light a cigarette and then just, mm -hmm. and, and would hold the camera on her face. Yeah, um, that's absolutely. A, that's something that someone's gifted with and then they have to learn how to, like Julianne Moore, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that with the old movies in particular, there's almost a sort of physical poetry um going on there's a sort of there's everything is held in a, a certain way joan crawford would receive the light you know she would sort of look up into it or and people move their whole bodies in a different way because it was before that more natural form that came in in the 60s you know when you start to get faye dunaway and all that stuff it changed um 
But I do love watching some of the old films. I mean, again, Catherine Hepburn for me is just my absolute favorite think, for think, that uh, whole I golden think, era. Uh, Betty Davis did say it as well. She said when she was asked about the the new the new school of acting, the more method, uh, hyper real, um, and she said, uh, "I don't I don't go to the, uh, people don't go to the movies to see normal people." She said, "If I want to see normal people, I go and stand on a street corner." She said, "You go to the movies to see stars." Um, yeah, but that the entire the the, the film industry. You know, when I was growing up, the Oscars was one of the biggest nights. Not in my family, they didn't really care, but I did. Um, yeah. And it's all waned off. The viewership of the Oscars has completely waned off. The actors who held all the powerful positions in, in movies, they're all making the jump to TV. Um, yeah. Cinema well, because that must be more exciting to tell a story over eight episodes or ten episodes. You know, Big Little Lies, I think, was the first season of that was one of the best things I've seen, you know, I actually think from and Nicole Kidman, who I love, I feel like it was her best performance ever. And it must, but you couldn't have told that story. Well, you could have told it in, in two hours, but what a treat for the actors to get to really show us how these feelings developed and how everyone got to where they got to. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot more that you can do with a mini series or with a Netflix series. Absolutely. But the, I feel like the, the sort of star quality, that movies create. So like, so I was recently listening to an interview with Angelica Houston. Um, yeah. And she was, she was talking about... Um, talking about what, sorry? Jack Nicholson. Oh yeah, because they were together for like years. Yeah, 17 years or something. And he never gives, well, very rarely gives interviews and he won't go on television. And it's because he is a star, a movie star. And he wants to maintain that and he doesn't want to dilute his brand by being on TV or being too accessible. Um, and like that's that's a difference now. So in the past, um, you would you would choose to go and see something. So you'd have a look at the listings of what was on in the cinema. You'd finish work, you'd come home, um, you'd get changed, you would drive to the, the cinema, find a place to park queue up, get your tickets, get your popcorn, go in, the lights would dim, and then this person's face would be projected on the screen. So it's so far removed. Yeah, you'd have to look up at it. Yeah. There was such a removal protest, like a desensitization, literally like darkening and just focusing you on this. And that created stars. Now, when it's all streamed into your TV, can watch it whenever you want and you can sit there watching it in your sweatpants and you can have your food with it and pause it whenever you like and re-watch it whenever you like that because it's so much more accessible it's in your house i think that takes a lot of the star quality away right? you'll never get old you'll never get stars like the old movie star because no i think that that's right and we've got it's a, it's the same with music to an extent like Adele was talking about this, that the era of the big event album is kind of over. And OK, she's just had a big a big event album, but um, the way we consume music is so much more granular now. Um, it, but the last stars, the, you know, Drake and Adele and people like that, they, they're closing off that era and we might not get stars that are that universally big again. You know, there probably won't be another 
um, those those artists that unite kind of a whole culture around them because we're so able to just consume based on our our little micro tastes and to watch things on TikTok. So yeah, I feel yeah, hundred percent. Um, well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us here on the Vanity Project. I'm looking forward to having more guests like yourself who come from a performance background who will be able to explore some of the things I've talked about today. Um, and we'll post any relevant links to you, but the main thing for people to know is they can watch you on the biggest soap in the country uh, several nights a week. So they'll have no difficulty finding you or um, indeed uh, uh, finding you on Twitter to follow more of your work. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, here we are now in Queen's Corner, the section of the Vanity Project podcast where I let my hair down with one of my good Judies from the London or UK cabaret scene. Today's Queen's Corner guest is not actually a drag queen, but may as well be. She is a DJ and she spends most of her time haunting the same establishments as me and my performer pals. It's none other than David Robson. Hey, David. Hello, Vanity. How are you, David? I'm not too bad, thank you, darling. Thank you for asking me onto Queen's Corner and being the honorary, what did Whitney call uh, Elton at Divas? Devo. We're trying to be diverse with Queen's Corner, so we've got a straight white man. Well, you're not straight. <laughs> I am wearing check, blue check, if that helps. In fact, the main reason, David, why I thought that, apart from that we always have a good laugh when we get together for, for a gossip, but I actually thought you're a bit of a Corey fan. And with the lovely Rob um, on this episode, I thought maybe you would have something to say or would be interested in reflecting, because I know you've watched every single episode of the show. Um, yeah, I, I, do you know what? It's one of those things where I didn't realise I was a huge fan of until I started having flatmates and they were like, and I think everybody thinks that, you know, because I'm a DJ on the scene, my drag queen friends, that it's all sex, drugs and rock and roll. And I think my most recent flatmate said, they were like, what's it like living with Robson? He was like, he's very quiet. He just watches Corey. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever go back and watch episodes from like 10 years ago? You're not that type of fan, are you? Um. I mean, the brilliant thing about being self-employed and working from home, or, you know, I mean, I, I know we've all been working at home, but but traditionally is on yesterday, or is it, yes, no, ITV3, they do play re repeats in the afternoon. So that is quite camp to go back to like the 90s when they're airing again. And you're like, quite recently, it was around Daniel being born. So that was oh. kind of, yeah, that was really weird. And because the mum, his mum is... Uh, Hazel, you know, Denise, Denise Black, who played Hazel in Queer as Folk. So, like, you know, it's just mad, like, that when Daniel's kind of being born and then Hazel going into Queer as Folk. I don't know. Yeah, there's just, yeah, it's mad. It's funny, the community of British actors who, like, I love when you watch a movie and, like, Celia Imrie pops up and, you know, or Julie Walters, and there's all the crisscrossing, like, they feel like part of our own extended family. And that's why people love soaps, I guess. Well, I mean, it's, it's similar. I mean, you won't, I mean, you're not a fan, are you, Corey? Corey isn't the soap that I've grown up watching. I believe it or not, I I I was <laughs> I was into the Aussie soaps when I was, you know, teenage and housebound after school would watch yeah. Neighbours and Home and Away. Well, I think you can tell uh, that maybe you've not seen too much Coronation Street in your life, <laughs> Tom. But there's, you know, so some of the characters, I do love the crossovers. So Debbie Webster and my favourite character who is currently in it, Abby Franklin, both used to be in Shameless. So, nice. you know, there's quite a lot of Shameless crossovers. But I mean, maybe it's a Northwest cast. Maybe maybe we need to get you on some sort of Northwest casting agency thing so you can have a, a walk on part on Corrie or something. You know, in Scotland, we had a soap called River City. I don't know if you've ever seen it. 
Never seen it, but I remember Tinseltown, which was a bit of the naughtier version, wasn't it? Yeah, well, ri- look, River City was like, a, 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 I mean, it's still on the air. Um, I actually, I'm sort of kind of friendly with one of the guys who used to be on it. And when we first met through a friend, he brought a friend brought this guy to my show and we were having drinks afterwards. And I was like, you're so familiar to me. <laughs> Turns out that he is from River City. Um, and River City is based in Glasgow. I, and I so thought would, it was. You would see the actors from it out and about on the town in Glasgow. Because Glasgow's yeah, yeah. not, I mean, it's a big city, but it's not like London. And um, it's just very funny hearing like the drama of a soap in your own home or native accent. And there was a character in it called Scarlet who had a baby and they called the baby Madonna. <gasps> so like 10 years into the soap, there was like scenes of high drama where Scarlet would yell at her husband, are you not going to pick Madonna up for school? <laughs> it's just, just absurd. It, that, 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 I feel like I'd be a fan of that soap. Because soaps have baked into them. There is a sense of camp, isn't there? I mean, of course, yeah, they're high camp. But, you know, I think the reason why, do you know, I mean, someone asked me why do I watch the soaps. I'd get ridiculed for all that. I mean, I can only do two. I do Enders, main, Enders and Corrie mainly. I feel like with Emmerdale, however, you know, it's, that's just who has m- that much time. And I've like, they already are an investment. And I feel as though they're like my longest relationship. It's like I've given them all this time. And of course, I remember watching them growing up with my gran, my aunties. It's almost become like, I must feel connected to home, even though I'm not from Manchester. Like, <laughs> in watching them, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like that familiar, just hearing the theme and, you know, that, that kind of familiarity. There's something about it that's always been a constant in my life. And I think maybe that's the familiarity of it that I kind of like and love. And of course they camp, they're high camp, totally. And Corrie is all about these amazing, gritty, working class women. And it still yeah. does that now. I mentioned Abby Franklin at the start. She's my favourite character in the, at the present. And, you know, they, they've got a long running history of showcasing and championing you know these amazing women and let's not remember let's sorry let's not forget it was written by a gay man mm. do you think i was just thinking when you were saying there about how you know you're from the north but live in london now and i suppose in a way when you flew the nest it was to you know you've come down here and you work in the nightclub industry and you're a community organizer so in one sense you sort of escaped the traditional sort of uh, home life by going to work in nightlife, but then you're still very involved in creating and building and supporting communities here in London. And I wonder if like soaps in a way, they help bind a national narrative, don't they? Because there's people from London who never have never been to Manchester. And there's people from Manchester who've never come to London. There's people who don't go out to the rural sticks where Emmerdale is, but it's quite nice to have these different locations within the country represented on screen and stories from say a rural background for Emmerdale put on uh, that city viewers can watch because if it weren't for that people would maybe feel quite modal like quite sort of in their little circle in their city and not really have a sense of being part of the bigger community I mean although I'm not sure we can I mean we live in London now as you say but I'm not sure we can look at that and think EastEnders is our reality to some degree you know what I mean (laughs) that's true I mean and when I think about Emmerdale the murder rate that happens there you really wouldn't want to go there you'd trip advisor it before Mm. you went the amount of murders and and, you know adultery and it's quite a racy little village although saying that I've got friends that live in villages back up in the northeast and they're like you'd be surprised village life (laughs) where it all goes off well you know people have got I was about to say people have got less to do out in the countryside, but I'm sure that's one, not true, and two, you get me in trouble. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to resort to murder, of course. Um, <laughs> I Rob, I, 
I, I, I thought you might appreciate, um, I know that the podcast is an audio experience, but Rob's quite a handsome man, David. Yeah, I'm very quite livid that, you know, as one of your eligible bachelor pals, you've never introduced me to such, uh, such a gentleman. He has quite a dish, wasn't he? Very nice. Yes, but you'd have to relocate because as we've heard, he's, you know, he's sticking with Corey for, for, the, for, for the short term foreseeable anyway. We can have both ways. He can come to me at weekends or me go up there. I think that's fine, isn't it? I do love a night out in Manchester. I was doing a show there a few weeks ago and um, hadn't been up because of the pandemic, hadn't been up, hadn't been anywhere actually, um, pretty much. And um, went up and did a show and then went out for my first proper night out in months and months because I wasn't drinking for a few months. And it was just such a reminder of the different type of approachability from the people in the north. And it's really, really fun for me coming from Scotland. I, I love that. I mean, I, and, and, I, and I know Rob's, uh, you know, I hear people say, oh, yeah, he's always in Canal Street and blah, blah, blah. You know, so that there is that kind of like nip, just nipping down the local, I think, around Canal Street, isn't it? And people do bump into each other. But I honestly cannot remember the last time I was there. Just to bring in a kind of, I keep bringing it back to Queerous Folk, didn't I? I don't know. But, um, you know, when I first watched that, I really thought Canal Street was just the centre of the universe. Yeah. And then when I got there, I was like, I walked past it at first. I was like, oh, it's just there. Right. Yeah. It was this huge. So it's a, I always used to think in my head it was much, much bigger. And I very nearly moved to Manchester. And I still have a lot of love for Manchester. But in the end, I think London looked out because I just liked the, the bigness of it. And I thought you could yeah. get lost in it a bit more. Maybe got lost in it too much at times. But yeah, but maybe Rob could tempt me back. I don't know. Well, that's the thing for me, because when I moved to London, it was to pursue performing. And obviously, um, well, maybe not obviously. Obvious to me is this is the right place for me, and and I I love I love London, and I actually love it for its size. I think that as much as I love Manchester, Manchester's equivalent in size to Glasgow, more or less, mm-hmm. um, as as a sort of city and city centre. I know yeah, it yes. stretches out, you know, well into Yorkshire and all the rest. But for me, while I love going Yorkshire, there, Lancashire, well, I, oh, I don't know the Shire. You know. You've never heard of the War of the Roses? I only see out the window on the train. God, no wonder you want independence. <laughs> I don't want independence. <laughs> um, no, Yorkshire does, though. Oh, yeah, well, there we are. Um, but, you know, it is something like um, gay people like to run away to cities, don't they? Because that's where you can sort of get lost in the nightlife and find yourself and find everyone else and all the rest. And I see that as a drag performer watching young people come out to the scene for the first time and they have to find their way in their own mm. way you know they have to find their way in their own way um and as like a guardian angel or as a drag queen i feel like we're kind of guardian angels and i wonder if you feel that as a dj because you know there will be that those people that might be a bit new to town they get a bit too drunk and then you're the one saying right has somebody if you got a taxi home like making you know what i mean looking out for for, for people I'm not sure if I'm becoming a cantankerous old queen, Tom, because, you know, I, I don't know. When you look, I think when I was first starting going out back in ye old days, the DJ was a fixing. You would go and make befriend the DJ and, you know, you talk to them. But these days, kids just shove a phone in your face. They don't oh, want it. They don't, yeah, and that drives me mad. It's like, talk to me. I'm here. You know, like, I want to engage. I want to have a conversation. But it just seems like today 
everybody's too busy looking in the phone and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I don't know if that's, this, it's not always, I mean, drag is just on a godlike level now, isn't it? Wherefore everybody is a DJ now, you know, just, I suppose just like, <laughs> I suppose like everybody is a, you know, a drag queen, you know, and everyone's like, oh, I love your playlist. And I'm like, it's not a playlist. It's a fucking set list, you know? So yeah. I don't know. I find it hot. people don't aren't as engaging to talk a little bit more now, I think, I think anyway. And I, well, you know, Forza was all about going out and, oh, what DJs on? Oh, and talking to them and get, oh, what mix of this have you got, you know? blah 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 and that's how you kind of built up communities and friendships yeah it's interesting I think that um for a long time it wasn't obvious to me well there were certain reasons for why I ended up being the type of performer I am and the type of work that I do um but I was speaking to my mother a few it's a few years ago like three or four years ago and just reflecting on how I was when I was little and she said that although I'm a confident person and I, I do like to talk and have fun with people very much. Like I, I can be the life and soul uh, uh, if I'm in the mood for a party. But I used to, when my oh. sister and I, you, know, you, you know what I'm talking oh. about. <laughs> but when I was very young, like my sister was the one that would go and talk to strangers and she'd like bring him over and then then we'd, you know, play some silly ball game or whatever, you know, when you're in the park or in a holiday camp or something like that. And, um, and when, then I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I, while I'm, I'm not shy, it's not in my nature to go up and approach people. And But I have found a job where people come up and approach me. And I wonder if part of that was sort of subliminal in my mind was like this intention that it's not in my nature to go out and just charge up to people and start talking, you know. And even in my job, like, of course, when I'm performing, it's my job to make people welcome and to host them and to bring them in. Um, but it isn't actually my natural state so i wonder if you've done if you've done the same thing in a way like that djing it's sort of like it's a way to connect to people i mean i mean for me it was always like music was just always it was just always my number one like i just yeah it was just always my dream and it was my goal and i knew i wanted to I'd like that I would always look enviously at, you know, those who were in the DJ booth and kind of think, well, I can do better than that. I've got the better knowledge here. I just don't, for me, I, I know a lot of DJs can be quite introverted, but I, I'm not, I, I, you know, I use it mm. to perform with and I'm an extrovert with it, you know, so I, for me, it's, is it a way to connect? It's a way, no, for, I can't sing. I'm not a drag queen. I'm not a comedian. For me, DJ was a way to perform and that was my way to connect to people. I think that's probably the way to look at it. Yeah, I think that's probably something that we have in common across with other people who are creatives, actors like Rob um, and uh, all the stalwarts of the scene in the nightlife that we run into. Um, David, it's been wonderful having you on this Queen's Corner segment. Um, we're more than halfway through the season now, so we've only got a few more episodes and we're eyeballing the prospect of doing a season two. So perhaps you'll come back and join us in the future. I would love to. Thank you for having me, Vanity. Thank you, David. If you are listening to and enjoying The Vanity Project, don't forget to subscribe. There are some episodes coming your way very soon, and they have exciting, fascinating, interesting, thought-provoking guests, and myself, Vanity Von Gogh. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.